Welcome to a new podcast from the Anti-Corruption Evidence Research Consortium, based at SOAS, University of London. My name is Jess Sinclair-Taylor, and I'm talking to Professor Mushtaq Khan, the Executive Director of SOAS ACE. Corruption is seen as a fact of life in many countries, and despite millions of pounds spent on countless programmes, most anti-corruption initiatives fail, according to the U4 Anti-Corruption Resource Centre. Meanwhile, Transparency International reported last year that over the past seven years, only 20 countries worldwide significantly improved public perceptions of levels of corruption. Clearly, there's a sense that action against corruption is stalling. Mushtaq, what's going wrong? I think what's going wrong is that it's a really entrenched problem and we really don't understand all the ramifications of what is going on. So when we talk about corruption in a developing country, we assume that there are a few powerful people who have access to influence and they're breaking the rules and everybody else is following the rules and as soon as you identify them, action will be taken and we'll get back to a rule of law. The fundamental problem with that is is that that's not how developing countries are structured. What you find in developing countries is that very large numbers of people are breaking rules, but they're doing that for very different reasons. So you have a lot of SMEs and small businesses which regularly break rules because the rules weren't made for them. Um, They can't follow the rules. So you have this problem of what is described as the big informal economy, where a lot of rule violations happen. At the same time, there are other people who could follow the rules, but they can't follow the rules because the institutions, the agencies which are supposed to certify or check aren't there. So they pay speed money to get around dysfunctional state organizations. And then there are the really bad eggs who are breaking the rules because they want to make lots of money by cheating other people and the public. And those are the guys we traditionally think of as being targeted by anti-corruption initiatives, the the bad guys, you might say. Exactly. And the problem is, as soon as you identify them, in public, everyone will say that's a really good thing. But actually, lots of people get scared that you might be targeting them next for the wrong reasons. And so the support for actually following this through is very, very limited, which is why, even though evidence and prosecutions and all those things happen, nothing actually happens in the end because the broad social support for this is paradoxically very weak. And what is worse is that the outcome of that is that the anti-corruption strategy with anti-corruption commissions and prosecutions eventually in many countries becomes a political ping pong between the powerful with the government chasing the opposition, and the anti-corruption is usually about just putting the opposition behind bars so that they can't contest the next election, or in some countries, the ruling party using anti-corruption to discipline the party and make people follow the commands of the the high, high command, rather than actually a rule of law. So that strategy, which many of us think of as anti-corruption, which is transparency reforms and accountability reforms and prosecutions of um, um, people identified as breaking the rules, generally speaking, go nowhere. And that is why we are thinking of a radically different way of doing anti-corruption in developing countries. So a lot of action and energy, but nothing changes. Um, But what would an alternative be? Because lots of people see... Um, you know, prosecuting people who have um, committed wrongdoing in some way have been corrupt as essential to establishing a rule of law. What would an alternative be that people might get behind? 
I think we're not saying that that shouldn't happen, that you shouldn't try and prosecute the you know, people who are identified as very corrupt. It's just that there is very little evidence that that produces sustainable results. So what we are saying is that you need to add to that a bottom-up approach to anti-corruption, which is very sector-specific and which looks at problems in different countries and sectors which are feasible to solve. And by that, we mean that it must be possible. So we look at the evidence of what's going wrong in a sector. Why are people breaking rules and what are the different types of corruption going on? And then we try to ask ourselves, is it possible to split the problem into its different components? So we split the people who are corrupt because they are cheats and frauds and who are trying to defraud the rest of us from those who are corrupt because the rules don't work for them, for those who are, from those who are corrupt because the, the agencies which will enable them to follow the rules don't work and don't um, deliver. And then we say, is it feasible to solve some of these problems so that some people who actually don't want to be corrupt, who want to follow the rules, can start following the rules? In other words, you split the corrupt into those who are the incorrigibly corrupt people and the people who are just corrupt because that's the way of doing business in these countries. That's the way how things get done in these countries and there's no other way of doing things. If you can do that, then we say we have a feasible anti-corruption strategy because then you split the problem and you get some buy-in within the sector of some people who are powerful enough to do things somewhat differently but who now feel that it's in their interest to follow the rules because it just makes life easier and they can do their business by following the rules. If you can't do that, then the anti-corruption won't work. So it, we are not saying that if you can do that, you will have a solution. It's just that this is, from our perspective, an absolutely essential condition that unless you can come up with a strategy where 70 or 80% of the people in a sector can actually do business and live their lives and follow their professions and get their services feasibly without corruption, then you don't have an anti-corruption strategy because then you find that almost everybody is breaking the rules, but they're breaking the rules for different reasons. So when you try to go after the really bad people in, in inverted commas, you actually don't have any support. So it sounds like in order to change the way that people are doing business in a particular sector, you need to really work out how you can get people on board with that because you know changing the way things are done is not something that happens overnight. It requires lots of people to come together. It requires maybe a change in the law, maybe not. Can you give us an example of how that could happen in practice? From what you've said, Jess, what we really need to do is when we start thinking of anti-corruption, we have to start thinking of very specific problems in very specific countries. There are no generic solutions. So to give you an example, if you look at the garments and textile sector in Bangladesh, you have building regulations that almost no garments industry is able to follow. And so you find a lot of corruption in building regulations and sometimes very nasty accidents happen. Almost everybody is breaking the rules, but they're breaking the rules for different reasons. So some of these companies are breaking the rules because the rules are excessively complicated and they weren't ever made for anyone to follow them. So they were just made in isolation from the real world. And a lot of companies find that actually following those regulations will break the bank. And this is a poor country. The regulations are un unviable for most companies. Then there are companies who could follow those regulations, but they find that the inspectors are very few. They don't come on time. Their shipments get delayed. 
so they have to pay speed money. And then there are those who are well enough connected to get the inspectors on time, can follow the regulations, but have no intention of doing that because they're trying to skim money off and save money. In other words, you have many different problems going on here. And if you just send in randomly people to check certification and then arrest people and prosecute them, you would pick up, first of all, a very large number of people. And secondly, you would get no support within the sector because everyone has something to hide. And I suppose nothing would change in the real world for the people working in those garment factories who are affected by poor building regulations or poor building, poor adherence to building regulations. Yes, I think so. So that's the ultimate problem, that if you followed a kind of transparency, accountability, prosecution um, um, strategy, you would pick up a few people. They would probably be people who are not politically connected, who are not very powerful, who were, in fact, the easy-to-attack people, and you would make a big example of them, but nothing would change. So instead, what we are suggesting is that you need to, first of all, understand the evidence and figure out what are the components of the problem, how many of each type, roughly, there exist, and then what might be feasible solutions for example, it might be that you need to simplify the regulations for some of the um, smaller and less capitalized companies. You might even need an exit strategy so that some of the companies which can't comply with even the simplified regulations have some strategy of exiting without creating lots of unemployment, which in poor countries would, again, be a political bar to stop your anti-corruption activities. And then you need to increase the capacity of the um, inspectors so that they give their certification on time. And once you've done all of that, you will still have then a small percentage of people who are the willful violators. And then your anti-corruption will start to bite because then everybody else will say, look, we can follow the rules. Those people are destroying the reputation of our country in international markets. Those people are, are, are causing the building collapses which kill people. And when the regulators come, we will all point out to them who those violators are. And not only will the, the inspection and regulators have support within the industry, when it goes to court, you will have genuine support within the industry to get rid of those people. That's exactly what happens in advanced countries when you have violations of financial or health and safety or other rules. Other companies support the prosecution of the bad eggs. But it doesn't happen in developing countries because we aren't looking at the complexity of the problem and that lots of different kinds of violations are going on, which we really need to separate out and understand. So I can see that that approach makes much more sense and sounds like something that would actually result in changes on the ground that would make a difference to people's lives. But the question that occurs to me is um, how would you bring together the kind of coalition, formal or informal, of politicians, of businesses, of other types of people who would need to act in order to both maybe change the rules, um, maybe change the practice to um, kind of achieve the implementation of that kind of anti-corruption strategy? I think the way that the, the SOAS ACE program works is that we are not saying that this is the only approach to anti-corruption. It's but we are saying that this is, to our mind, an essential component of it because anti-corruption is only going to work from the bottom up with real support from insiders who see the anti-corruption as something that is in their own interest 
and not something that some you know, court or judge or somebody else is trying to impose on them. So the first thing that we do is we actually study our countries in great detail. And this is the difficult part of our approach. People like to have a cookie-cutter approach they can take anywhere, but you can't. So you have to start by saying, what are the economic, social, um, and welfare issues in this particular country? And what types of corruption are blocking the outcomes that people want to see? in terms of jobs, in terms of healthcare, in terms of education, what are the problems? You first have to understand that. Then you dig deeper and say, okay, within the health sector or the business sector or the education sector or whatever you're looking at, there are people who want to do their everyday jobs, who want to create jobs or who want to work in their jobs or follow their profession. Why aren't they being, are they not being able to do that? We first have to understand that. And you see that a lot of everyday people are breaking rules on an everyday basis just to do their jobs. We need to work with them and understand these problems first. We have to bring them on board. We have to work with industry associations, doctors associations, skills providers, educationists. So those are our, what we call the boundary partners. They are the people who are the consumers of our ideas once we come up with the evidence of what can be done. If you don't have that, then it's a non-starter. And the test of our research that we always ask ourselves is, suppose we do this research, is there anyone in this country who might be interested in this research, and not just as an academic exercise, but who will use this research to start to change things in their own interest? Now, if that condition isn't there, that there's no one we can see who in their own interest will be interested in our research and will say, this is a great idea, we'll, we are now going to push it without any donor funding or development partners, but this is something that is of interest to us, then that's not a feasible sector to work in. So our approach won't work in every sector. Our approach won't solve every kind of corruption problem, but we think it's important to start with solvable corruption problems which have a market in that developing country. We give the ideas and we offer solutions which are practicable from the perspective of some of the insiders whose problem we have now addressed, who can then say, actually, if we change the rules or the incentives or the funding formula in these ways, we don't have to break the rules. And then we identify the people who are really making life miserable for us. So that's the precondition. And that's also our theory of change. As you begin to solve small, practicable problems which have a big impact, they might be small, but they have a big impact, you begin to create a broader constituency for anti-corruption, which is a genuine action-oriented constituency and not a political rhetoric-based constituency. We have too much of the latter. We have a lot of people who believe in anti-corruption because there's donor funding behind it, because there's political capital you can make out of it, but they really have no self-interest in delivering an outcome. Whereas what we are looking for are those pockets where there is genuine self-interest in coming up with an anti-corruption strategy. They might look small, they might not look like the big ticket things that people want to fund and do. That's how we think change will happen. That's where our theory of change tells us that incrementally you create constituencies for change, which, and it might take 40, 50, or 60 years, will eventually result in a generally rule-following society emerging. 
But that's not our immediate agenda. Our immediate agenda is to solve problems sector by sector, country by country. You've been listening to the SOAS Anti-Corruption Evidence Research Consortium podcast. You can find out more about SOAS ACE at www.ace.soas.ac.uk or you can follow us on Twitter at ace underscore SOAS.